Now let's get medicated. Medicated, medicated, man. Let's get medicated. Let's get medicated. What's going on, everyone? My name is Liam Smith, and I'd like to officially welcome everybody to the very first episode of the I on IR podcast. I'm really excited about this. I've had this idea for a while, so I'm really glad I could finally get this in motion. And I'd also like to thank everybody for tuning in today. So just to give a quick overview of what exactly this podcast is going to be, as sports fans, we understand that injuries are an unfortunate but inevitable part of any game. But trying to navigate your favorite team's injury report or really understand what's going on with your favorite athletes can be an absolute mess sometimes. So for me, I'm a biological sciences undergraduate with a minor in communications So first off, this is a cool way for me to combine two of the things that I'm passionate about. And then also, I have a decent amount of experience shadowing orthopedists. So I'd like to think that I have a little bit better understanding of what's going on with sports injuries than maybe the average sports fan would. So my goal is to act as a middleman. I'll go through the tedious articles, the injury reports, all this stuff, and try and present the information in a way that makes sense. I did mention previously, so I will disclaim, I'm an undergraduate. I am by no means a doctor. So a lot of the things that I'm talking about are research-based. And if there's ever a time where you're listening, you think, you know, you want to dispute me about something, you have questions, or you think I'm flat out wrong, that's perfectly okay. And I'd encourage you to reach out to me about that. I'm doing this in order to get better. So any feedback would be very, very appreciated. Some episodes I'll be talking about more specific injuries to players. I'll talk about what that injury exactly, you know, looks like, what's going on anatomically with this individual. Um, I'll talk about their rehab processes and then what you can expect from these athletes moving forward. And then other episodes will be a little bit more general where I'll talk about big, important, significant topics um, related to science within professional sports. So, for example, this week I will be talking about. Oh, what a hit! Look out, Lance Smith! My goodness. Head injuries in football players. So, take a second to think about how many hits to the head an offensive lineman would take during an average football game. And realistically, it's it's probably every play. There's going to be some contact, some amount of impact, and I was going to vary a, a decent amount based on the specific play. But a study came out that said. An offensive lineman takes the impact during one football game equivalent to 62 car accidents, which is absolutely ridiculous. But, I mean, think about it. That's just one game. So you multiply that by 16 games in a season, maybe a couple more for playoffs. Multiply that by an eight-year career, three to four years of college, four years of high school, and not even to mention the tens of thousands of practices that every player is going to go through. I mean, that's not even including all the big hits either, you know, and all the times that they've probably gotten a little shook up from a hit. And now obviously this is going to vary a lot based on position, but what I'm trying to get across is that football can be an absolutely brutal sport. And although that's the way a lot of people like it, it has unfortunately taken a toll on a lot of players over the years. Lately, we've seen more and more players suffering from headaches, memory loss, confusion, 
and even behavioral changes and aggression. We've even lost a couple legends of the game to something called CTE. CTE is about CTE. CTE and concussion. CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So to break that down real quick, chronic or long-term, traumatic or severe, and then encephalopathy, the big one, basically just means something's not functioning right within the brain. This was first diagnosed in 1928, and it was actually first known as punch drunk syndrome. And that's because boxers were the first group of people that were really affected by this condition. But on top of that, it really goes to show that head injuries and CTE have not been taken very seriously over the years. I mean, punch drunk syndrome is a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty goofy name for what in reality is a very life-threatening condition. But by far the most notable thing about CTE is how recent all of these developments related to American football players have come into the spotlight. The first diagnosed case of CTE in a football player was 2005. So here we are 15 years later, you've got a number of documentaries, movies, a ton of research is going into it, and not even to mention the number of tragic deaths of former players. I mean, I would, I would go as far as saying the entire sport of football is, it's under question right now to a certain degree. So what happens when a football player takes a hit? And we'll, I mean, we'll talk about just a classic example here. Some wide receiver catches the ball on a slant. They look up and just get cracked by the safety. Now, inside your skull, your brain is kept in place with a level of protection. You can sort of compare it to that of like a seatbelt. And real quick, I do want to take this opportunity, just a quick seatbelt check. If ever can make sure you buckle up real quick. I'm going to start talking about science here a little bit, but we'll keep it under control, I promise. So no, there is not a physical diagonal cord that your brain buckles up every time you play football. But think about it like when you're in a car and you're moving forward and somebody slams on the brakes. You're going to get pushed forward until your seatbelt catches you. And then once the car finally stops, you get thrown back into your seat. Well, this is kind of like what happens when a wide receiver gets hit, right? So they're running and all of a sudden when they get hit, their brain is still moving the opposite direction right? So it's going to start bouncing around inside your skull. And then once you hit the ground, it's going to continue. Your brain's going to bounce off one wall and then get thrown back to the other side. And the human brain is, I mean, it's very fragile in its natural state. You know, it's, it's a lot like the consistency of jello. You know, you wouldn't be able to hold it in your hands without it just turning into mush. Now you may have seen brains before in, you know, I've seen them in, in science settings or in museums or things like that. But the only reason it's able to keep its form in those, in those environments is because so many chemicals and preservatives have been added. So when you think about the structure of a brain, you've got, it's about the size of like a giant meatball, maybe a small rabbit. You know, you've got these, this ground beef looking appearance to it. So, you know, you've got these little gaps, they're called fissures in the brain. And they're naturally, I mean, they're supposed to be there. They're there in everybody's brain. But as your brain is repeatedly, you know, bouncing back and forth, going side to side, twisting left and right, these gaps can start to expand and this can cause problems. Then on top of that, something called tau proteins start to accumulate. And kind of like these gaps, you know, tau proteins are present in everyone's brain. They're there in healthy individuals. But once your brain starts taking damage, these tau proteins work with something called microtubules, which are really just there. They're miniature tubes that help to circulate nutrients around the brain. 
But like I said, once your brain starts taking damage, these microtubules can take damage. And they start to rupture. And then the tau proteins get released. And I mean, honestly, you can think of it like a jailbreak. Like these tau proteins are the inmates. And once they're out, they start wrecking havoc. And they start destroying your brain cells. And just to, I mean, just to give you some perspective on what these tau proteins are, they're the same things that work with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. I mean, things that modern medicine really can't do anything about. Now, there are different levels and severities of CTE, and that's classified in four different stages. So stage one patients, which, I mean, to be honest, like if someone showed me a, a stage one brain versus just a regular human brain, if I didn't have a key, I probably would not be able to tell the difference. Like we're talking about very minuscule things that you would really have to know what you're looking for. While stage four, the brain looks absolutely frail in comparison. I mean, it, it's seriously a shadow of what a healthy brain would look like. And it, I mean, you really don't have to be a scientist to say that having less of a brain is probably not going to benefit you. But to be honest, these explanations really do not do it a full justice. So I would encourage everyone, please head over to our I on IR Instagram page at I underscore on underscore IR to check out full images of what I'm talking about. Um, definitely will be helpful. I can assure you that. So what kind of symptoms are gonna be associated with different stages? Well, that's a tough question to answer because different parts of the brain are responsible for different functions of the body. So theoretically, two people who both have the same stage of CTE at different parts of the brain could have completely different symptoms and pretty much completely different conditions for that matter. But anyway, just like that, we have now reached the metaphorical state of New Hampshire. Everyone can unbuckle your science seatbelts. There's no laws on it anymore. Click it or take it. But anyway, back to football. I mentioned earlier that it wasn't until 2005 that the first case of CTE was diagnosed in an American football player. And we see that in former Steelers center Mike Webster. So thinking about that example of how we started this episode, talking about how many hits an offensive lineman probably takes throughout their career. I mean, the absurd number of hits that they're taking. Mike Webster basically is that example, except instead of an eight-year career, we're looking at 17 years in the NFL. And this is back in the Steelers' glory days too. So we're talking about four Super Bowls, a whole lot of extra playoff games, snapping the ball to a Hall of Fame quarterback. I mean, you're doing everything in your power in some of these situations to try and make sure Terry Bradshaw is not taking hits. Mike Webster was also nicknamed Iron Mike for his toughness. And I mean, unfortunately, it was that same toughness that ended up being the cause of his demise. So anyway, Mike Webster retires from football and that's when things start getting pretty strange. So he goes from living in a mansion to living out of the back of his truck. He's seen sleeping at train stations. Uh, I mean, his wife divorces him. He dies at age 50 of heart attack, which, you know, tragic. But I even read somewhere that he used to administer electric shocks to himself to be able to sleep. So we're talking about someone with pretty clear as day mental issues going on. And, you know, this is someone with 17 years of NFL money. So, you know, surrounded by a team with extensive financial resources, you know, there's no reason anyone like this should be sleeping at train station should be homeless. And then, I mean, for that matter, I think the entire city of Pittsburgh probably would have given him a place to stay for the night. So anyways, after Webster's death, 
they take a look at his brain and first glance they don't really notice anything abnormal but they take a closer look and after some time they see this tau protein buildup and just like that the floodgates for cte shoot open so although this is a tragic story needless to say mike webster ends up leaving an impact on the game much bigger than just as a center because now we see so many more players donating their brain towards research and as a result we now know so much more about this condition since then though we've unfortunately seen this narrative in the post-football life of a number of nfl players um, big names include junior seau 20-year nfl career 12-time pro bowler most of which out in san diego playing with his hometown team um, he actually hops over to the patriots during that almost undefeated season, he wanted a ring, didn't quite get it. Puts a smile on my face just thinking about the Patriots losing that game. Tough for Junior, unfortunately. But by every account, after he retires, he sees his life flip upside down. He distorts into this aggressive, angry, really unrecognizable person that he once was. Eventually, Junior commits suicide at age 43. But the kicker is... He shoots himself in the chest to preserve his brain. Another example, super relevant recently, Aaron Hernandez. Obviously, the Netflix docuseries just got released. Certainly uh, one or two shocking developments brought to the table in that one, but won't get into those right now. But anyway, post-death examination shows thorough CTE in Hernandez. So Aaron Hernandez, obviously multiple murders committed. Could you argue that these murders are a result of his CTE. Now, this is a question that no one really knows the answers to. No one is going to know the answer to. Did football make him a murderer? Probably not. You know, there's obviously a lot of other things going on in his life at a young age that probably impacted his behavioral patterns. Did playing football help? Probably not either. But at the same time, I don't think this is a cause of concern that we need to worry about our average tight end going up and killing multiple people. Probably not that serious. People have been playing football for a long time. But it does make you wonder how many football players are playing through CTE right now. You know, when we cheer for a big hit, are we supporting someone taking years off their life? So thinking about current players right now, I mean, the first person that definitely comes to my mind, I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking this, is easily Antonio Brown who I guess is technically not a current player. He's not on an NFL team at the moment, but someone who two years ago was probably, I mean, very well recognized to be probably the best receiver in football. Maybe you argue Julio Jones. I mean, maybe Mike Evans. If you're a Giants fan, you could probably argue Odell. But I mean, top of the game, also someone who we've seen take a pretty good number of big hits. I mean, the Vontez Perfect almost knocks him out cold in the playoffs. He has a couple of concussions. And someone whose life is currently spiraling out of control. You know, his social media is like a game right now. He's making different apologies, different claims every day. Been a couple run-ins with the police. A couple, like, domestic issues. He's cursing in front of his children, disrespecting his family on Instagram Live. I mean, just behaviors that a couple years ago would have been absurd to see from AB. Um, I, for one, will be very curious to see what the brain of OJ Simpson looks like. Obviously, I hope him and AB live a very rewarding rest of their life, but 
when that situation comes available, you know, I will not be surprised to see if CTE is present within them. Rob Gronkowski's girlfriend came out and said that he's had a lot of concussions in his career, which I'm sure if you've heard Rob Gronkowski open his mouth, probably is not a shocker to you. I mean, yes. I haven't read a book since Shockingly, ninth grade when they that made me like. Was from the you know, you don't Rob raise your hand, but they call on the you. Patriots I'm mocking the remember or whatever. Mockingbird to remember, right? Yeah. But in all seriousness, as football fans, we need to understand that CTE is terrible for the game of football as we know it. And in the near future, we could be looking at a very different game than the one that's played right now. So where do we go from here? Well. Only having about 15 years of research in football players makes CTE especially tough because something tells me that new findings probably are not going to be very positive and are probably not going to be in support of the way that football has traditionally been played. But at the same time, there are definitely a lot of people in the United States who are not going to let this traditional game of football go. When asked about CTE, Commissioner Goodell maintained the position that NFL players are still healthier than the average person, citing that NFL players have a five-year longer lifespan than the average individual. So while this claim is true statistically, you definitely have to consider a couple things when you're evaluating it. I mean, first off, NFL players are far wealthier than the average individual, and because of that, they'll have better access to medical care, things of that nature, and it's going to definitely positively impact their lifespan. And then in general, exercising, practicing regularly, maintaining this elite level of fitness that NFL players need to do, it's really good for your heart. It's going to reduce the risk of cancer, and these are both evident in NFL players. But at the same time, you're also at a huge risk of injury. And because of that, you're at a much higher risk of dependency and addiction on pain medication. I mean, I could do a whole separate episode about this, but we've seen it in a number of cases in NFL players. Brett Favre came out and said he used to take a month's worth of Vicodin in two days when he would get injured. I mean, a number of cases about that. And then with the risk associated with degenerative disease like CTE, you have to think more than just years live, but also the quality of life. And to me, turning into this aggressive, distorted person like a fraction of the, the person you used to be, seems like about one of the least healthy things that could possibly happen to somebody. So overall, I'd say Goodell's claim varies a lot based on what position you play. So skill positions, quarterback, wide receiver, corner, um, kicker, punter, obviously. Kicker, punters, probably, they're probably the healthiest guys on the field. But I'd say they're probably healthier than the average person. But contact-heavy positions... Linebacker, O-line, D-line, running backs. To be completely honest, I would say probably is not worth the risk. It's probably a lot less healthy than the average person. So what is the future of football? And once again, I mean, it's a question that no one truly knows the answers to. But a couple of my ideas. First off, we're going to see a lot more lawsuits. We've already seen a couple. And to be honest, for fans... It'll probably put you in a difficult position at times, you know, seeing the players that you grew up cheering for or, you know, you've supported for a long period of time going up and challenging the game that you love in the way that it's normally been played. Next, we're going to see way more research. So right now, the top lab is probably Boston University has a really good program. We're going to see that expanded upon. We're going to see every university putting on some sort of research. And then in combination, 
with the amount of money in the NFL, like there's going to be no shortage of funding. They will have access to every material at that disposal. And we are going to learn a ton in a short period of time. Um, on top of that, we'll see a lot more rule changes. And inevitably, it is going to affect the way that the game's played. So last year, we saw the elimination of the blindside block. Um, we've seen the implementation of the blue tents on the sideline to make sure that concussions are properly evaluated um, and just more thoroughly recognized every time. And right away, we saw that come into effect. So this past year in the playoffs, Carson Wentz takes a hit. He goes to the blue tent and he doesn't come back in. Now, did the Eagles win that game if he's still on the field? Maybe, you know, that's also not a question we can really answer. Do they have a better chance to win that game? I would say 100% they do. And 10 years ago, I would say there's also a very good chance you don't see him get removed from the game at all. Another one, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something similar to the way that targeting is implemented in college football um, with more player disqualifications. You know, you can debate how, you know, how much that benefits the game. But at the same time, NFL is going to be put in a position where it needs to make changes. So, you know, right off the bat, list past year in the college football playoffs, Ohio State gets a defensive player disqualified, Clemson wins the game. National championship, Clemson loses a big defender, and LSU can't be stopped all of a sudden, you know? Whether or not that's why they won the game, completely separate topic of discussion, but regardless, it has been extremely significant and surely will be if it's put into the NFL. I think we'll see more suspensions, fines will be amplified, and just in general, players will be held accountable to a further degree than they have been previously. We're also going to see a lot more players stepping away from the game at a young age. You know, you saw Andrew Luck, Luke Keekley. I don't think that trend is going to go anywhere either. This is a big one for me too. I think that helmets will be completely redesigned. So right now, helmets are actually designed to prevent skull fractures, but not concussions and not CTE. So this actually might end up being very significant because it can completely change this iconic image that we have of NFL players, you know, helmet on, helmet in hand, in the tunnel. And we've already seen some helmet changes recently. You know, there was this big situation going back to AB where his helmet that he had been using was outlawed. We could see more friction with that from players, um, but I do think helmets will be completely changed as we progress towards the future of football. Ideally, in the next couple of years as well, we will figure out a better way to monitor CTE. So right now, pretty much the best beta check is after someone dies, you cut into their brain and then you can really see what happens. So ideally, like I said, as research continues, hopefully we will be able to figure out something like that and then better adapt the ways that we deal with CTE as a player's career continues. I also easily could see this issue spreading across the world through other sports. So hockey, rugby, soccer players heading the ball, all could easily potentially be affected by this condition. I do wanna quickly say that my intention of this episode and podcast as a whole is not to scare anyone. Maybe you're listening thinking, you know, I've had a couple of concussions, is this something I should be concerned about? I also personally have had a couple concussions playing soccer, and this is actually kind of a misconception about CTE, is that, you know, it's really not as much about concussions as it is about just the frequency that you're taking hits. So while some high school football players have been seen with CTE, 
it's really not at a frequency that should be concerning to anybody. As the number of years playing football increases though, so does the risk of CTE. College players observe that a higher frequency than high school. And at this point, almost all NFL players are observed with some degree of CTE. There was a study done recently that showed that 110 out of 111 observed brains in former NFL players showed some degree of the condition. The biggest issue for American football right now to address, you know, it's one thing for today's football players and in the future for football players to understand the health risks that come with these multi-million dollar contracts. And, you know, if they still want to play football, then who are we to really stop them? But for children, for youth, for adolescents, to be putting their brain and long-term health at risk is a huge and completely different issue. One thing I can say for sure, though, is that our kids and our kids' kids will be playing and watching a very different game of football than we are right now. And the possibilities are really limitless. So I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode of the Eye on IR podcast, the very first episode. And I hope you all tune in soon for all the injury updates right here. Thank you very much. This is your host, Liam Smith. I am not a doctor, and I'll see you all soon.